Hello and welcome to episode 28 of My Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Now, back in episode 26, we ended the, with the Battle of McDowell on May 8th of 1862, which was a victory for Jackson's Confederates. After this battle, Union General Milroy evacuated the valley to the west and retreated to the safety of the Allegheny Mountains, rejoining General Fremont's main force there. And in his retreat, he utterly destroyed the roads and mountain passes that Jackson might have used to pursue him. This scorched earth approach was smart for the Federals in the short term. However, later in the campaign, the Federals under General Fremont would need those roads in order to pursue Jackson. This handicap would prove costly for the Union forces and would assist Jackson later on. Now, the other major Union force in the valley was commanded by General Nathaniel Banks. He had moved north and was completely unaware of Jackson's presence in the South Valley. uh, Banks knew nothing of Jackson's victory at McDowell. Now, what I failed to mention in the last episode uh, was one of the most important reasons for Jackson's success in the valley. We've already discussed Jackson's willingness to take huge risks and to push men and animals beyond the limits of endurance with very little food and no rest. What we haven't discussed is that after the Battle of Kernstown, Jackson added to his staff a brilliant mapmaker named Jedediah Hotchkiss. Hotchkiss was from Stanton, Virginia, one of Virginia's leading geologists and an accomplished amateur cartographer. According to author S.C. Gwynn, Hotchkiss was devoutly religious and, like Jackson, neither drank alcohol or smoked. Jackson summoned him, asked him about the topographical work he had done in, in Virginia, and they gave him his first order. I want you to make a map of the valley from Harper's Ferry to Lexington, showing all points of offense and defense in those places. Mr. Pendleton will give you orders for whatever outfit you want. Good morning, sir. At a time when many commanders were forced to make use of store-bought maps of atrocious quality, Hotchkiss was an extraordinary asset. Jackson had already used his talents in crossing the Blue Ridge and in the mountainous country around McDowell, His ability to understand and employ terrain would have everything to do with Jackson's next enterprise, the destruction of Nathaniel Prentice Banks. Now, meanwhile, during and after Jackson's Battle of McDowell, Confederate General Richard S. Ewell was back where Jackson had left him in Elk Run Valley to the east. He was fuming because he had no idea where Jackson was and no idea what was expected of him. Jackson's subordinates would eventually get used to being ignorant of Jackson's plan, but this was all new to Ewell at the time. Now, Union General Banks had thought Jackson was gone from the valley, so he had dispatched a division under Shields to cross the Blue Ridge Mountains to the east and join McDowell's force in Fredericksburg. This would ostensibly allow Shields to take part in the attack on the Confederate capital at Richmond that was underway or that was beginning. Now, Jackson had told Ewell to stay put at Elk Run Valley to the east, even though he, Ewell, was aching to attack Shields as he made his way east over the Blue Ridge. This caused Ewell to fume all the more. But he would find out soon enough why Jackson wanted him here, 
exactly where he was. Jackson, as usual, was pressing his army hard, and they were headed back towards the South Valley. He knew that Banks had dispatched a division away from the valley to Fredericksburg, and that Banks was now vulnerable to attack. Also during this time, Jackson received a wire from Robert E. Lee advising him that, quote, If you can form a junction with General Ewell, with your combined forces, you, will, you, you would be able to drive Banks from the valley, end quote. That's all Jackson needed to hear. Banks was vulnerable and ignorant of the dangers coming at him from the south and east. Meanwhile, Ewell had received conflicting orders from Confederate General Johnston that had to be cleared up by Jefferson Davis before he was able to physically join Jackson. Once this was sorted out, the combined force of Ewell and Jackson would make history in the valley. Now, this combined force, now all under Jackson, was off on the races, headed north to cut off General Banks's force. Banks could not possibly grasp how Jackson's force would move with such sustained speed over such large distances, but Jackson jettisoned his supply chains or ordered his men to march without knapsacks and tents. They carried only light equipment and a few days' cooked rations. Jackson's men marched 90 miles in bad weather over bad roads and mountainous terrain. Then on May the 23rd, they smashed into a small portion of Banks' Union force under uh, Colonel Kenley at Front Royal. Kenley had about a 1,000 men stationed uh, at the Union garrison there. These Union men put up a determined fight, but most were either killed or captured by Jackson's men, and the rebels captured about $300,000 worth of Union supplies there. It was about this time the Confederates began to call General Banks Commissary Banks. Now, the lion's share of uh, Banks' force was just off to the west of Front Royal in Strasburg, and they knew they were in danger. The danger they faced was that Jackson's force was about to be between them and the safety of the Potomac River crossing. They were about to be cut off. So Jack, uh, Banks decided to run as fast as he could back to Winchester, which was 18 miles north of his current location. If he marched north, he could at least have a chance of beating Jackson in a foot race, which was exactly what he tried to do. Now, Jackson didn't exactly know Banks would engage in a foot race to the north, but he had a hunch, and he went with it. Unfortunately for Banks, he didn't have the luxury of the swift-moving foot cavalry, as Jackson's men were known. On the contrary, he had a massive wagon train of supplies, along with hundreds, perhaps thousands, of, of escaped enslaved people who were refugees attached to his army. He couldn't possibly move fast enough to outrun the Confederates, right? Well, on May 24th, Jackson crashed into the tail of Banks' army at Middleton, Virginia, and the bloody carnage was breathtaking, even to Jackson. Although devastating to the Federals, the clash was over in a few minutes, and Jackson's men took over uh, 200 prisoners. Meanwhile, the main body of Banks' force had thrown down their supplies and were racing down the Valley Pike north towards Winchester. In pursuit, Jackson had split his force, with his own men marching north along the Valley Pike directly following Banks. 
Meanwhile, he directed Ewell's force to march north on a parallel path along the Front Royal Winchester Road. They would converge on Winchester from two directions and lay waste to Banks' army there. While this pursuit was underway, Lincoln, and indeed all of Washington, had become terrified by the prospect of Jackson's army smashing Banks's army and then moving on the U.S. Capitol from the valley. This was Lincoln's worst nightmare. So he ordered General McDowell, who was on the east side of the Blue Ridge Mountains, to divide his force in half and send it to the valley to save Banks. At the same time, he ordered General Fremont, who was in the Alleghenies to the west, immediately to come to Banks' rescue as well. These orders from Lincoln were exactly the reason for Jackson's presence in the valley. He was there to disrupt McClellan's plan to take Richmond, and he was succeeding. Meanwhile, miraculously, Banks actually outran Jackson to Winchester. This was probably accounted for by the fact that Jackson's men had been running nonstop for the past three days. Plus, much of Ashby's cavalry had stopped along the way to loot the seemingly endless supplies of food and material that the Federals had left strewn along the road. Banks was not out of danger, though. In fact, in truth, he was in danger of complete annihilation. So the Winch- uh, Battle of Winchester began on a foggy morning on April 25th at about 4.30 a.m. Jackson had his men placed just south of town on the west side or left of the Valley Pike. He placed Ewell's men on the east side or the right of the pike. The Union regiments had the high ground in front of them, just south of Winchester. When the fighting began, it appeared that the Union had the upper hand, and it became a desperate fight at times. However, as things progressed, Jackson's lieutenants informed him that he could flank Banks' army on the right if a very strong force were sent in. So he chose General Richard Taylor's brigade of about 2,500 men to execute this flanking maneuver. Richard Taylor was the son of President Zachary Taylor, and he was highly respected as having the most disciplined brigade in Jackson's army, as well as the largest. When Taylor came out to Jackson to receive his orders, Jackson pointed to the right wing of the Union Army and said, You must take it. And take it they did. Taylor's battle line was 1,000 yards across. And, And on his command, they charged up the hill toward the Federals. Within minutes, they routed the enemy without firing a shot. The entire Union line on the hill broke and fled into the town of Winchester to the north. Ewell then sent his men around to the east of town to try to block the Federals from retreating. Jackson's troops were now firing on the fleeing Federals, many of whom laid down their arms to surrender. Soon the Union Army was in full flight north on the road to Martinsburg and beyond to the Potomac River. Soldiers were running for their lives now. More than a thousand of them had already been taken prisoner in the streets of the town. For the rest, it was their luck that Jackson's army was in no, no position to pursue. Many Confederates had, were so exhausted from their foot race to Winchester 
that they simply laid down to sleep. Also, there was utter chaos inside the town, now cluttered with discarded equipment, discarded weapons, discarded wagons, burning wagons, and burning buildings. The townspeople welcomed Jackson's army with hugs and kisses and tons of food to eat and milk to drink. Jackson wrote Anna the next day the following. My precious darling, an ever-kind providence blessed us with success at Front Royal on Friday, between Strasburg and Winchester on Saturday, and here with a successful engagement yesterday. I do not remember ever having seen such rejoicing as was manifested by the people of Winchester as our army yesterday passed through the town in pursuit of the enemy. Jackson got the same treatment from his troops. To them, he was now a god, and they roared and waved enthusiastically at Jackson as he rode by, throwing their hats in the air. Strangely, however, Jackson's cavalry under Ashby was nowhere to be seen. Also, his other cavalry chief, General George Stewart, refused an order to pursue uh, the Federals in their flight. So, as a result, what remained of Banks' army fled to the Potomac River and was able to cross chaotically, but for the most part unmolested by rebel cavalry. Historian S.C. Gwynn writes, But Jackson had won a staggering victory. It was striking on both tactical and strategic levels. He had marched his men 177 miles since his victory at McDowell 17 days before, and in less than 48 hours had driven banks 53 miles from Strasburg and literally into the Potomac River and across uh, the Maryland state line. He had done this even though his artillery had failed him miserably at Front Royal and his cavalry had at Newtown and Winchester. Jackson's force had suffered fewer than 400 casualties. Banks had lost more than 3,500 men, 3,000 of whom were prisoners of war. Jackson had already knocked the Union War in Virginia off balance. His victory at Winchester would soon shift the attention of the world from what seemed certain defeat in front of Richmond to the strange, shimmering new possibilities that were rising from the mists of the Shenandoah Valley. But even more importantly, Jackson had captured a literal mountain of war material. He had taken from Banks 34,000 pounds of food, 500,000 rounds of ammo, many cannons, over 9,000 muskets, over 100 uh, cattle, huge amounts of medicine that amounted to more than existed in the whole rest of the Confederate Army. The moment of victory now also marked the birth of the legend of Stonewall Jackson. While things were going to pot for the rebels in the West, the East had a new hero. No one on either side would look at Jackson the same way again. Now join me the next time for episode 29, in which we will discuss President Lincoln's plan to set a trap for Jackson in the valley. 